Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. Turn to Acts chapter 11 with your Bible. I wonder when the last time it was that you went in for a checkup, dental, maybe a physical, you were hoping to hear from the doctor, well, good, well done, well done good and faithful servant, right? You were hoping to hear that from your dentist, oh, I can see you floss. Oh, I've never, more like, how often do you floss is the question I get. Yeah, I know I've been playing this game long enough that I should be doing it every day. I know what you're about to tell me. Uh, Well, we get into Acts chapter 11 this morning, and we want to be healthy, right? You go to the doctor, you go to the dentist, you go get a checkup, you want to be healthy. When we get into the scriptures, we want to be a healthy church. And what you find in the church in Antioch is one of the best models that we have of the early church that is a faithful and healthy gospel-witnessing church. Take and open. If you're in verse 19, I'll read from there. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, you have been and will always be faithful to the generations. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. By your grace, we are your church. We are humbled before you this morning, and our Bibles are open before us that we learn from the saints in Antioch that which we do not know. O Lord, that you would teach us what we do not have, you would provide for us. And what we are not yet, make us more like Christ for your glory and our good. We pray this in the name of Jesus, Father, that you would grant us success as we strive to be the church. Amen. I want to walk through this passage this morning and bring out some marks of a healthy church. I've got seven for you this morning and... Uh, We'll work through uh, the text and we'll get there. 
The first one we see is in verse 19, and it's uh, that the healthy church is marked by a commitment to the call of Christ. The call of Christ, or the cause of Christ, but rather, uh, we can call it both, but I'd say the call of Christ first, because what you have here in Antioch is a hodgepodge mixture of cultures. Antioch was quite the city. At this point, most scholars believe about half a million people. It's a very important uh, location. It's a natural location for the launch of a strong Christian witness and a church uh, as it had access to the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, this is the church that would launch the missional efforts of the early church, the worldwide mission effort. And how did these believers get there? How did the church get to Antioch? Well, that's connected actually back to chapter 8. So if you would just for a moment turn back to Acts chapter 8, and you'll see there in verse 1, a man by the name of Saul. Saul, the Pharisee, had approved the execution of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. At that point, the only church was Jerusalem Central. Coastal Oaks, Jerusalem, if you will, okay? They were all scattered throughout the regions. As that persecution began and intensified, the church began to scatter throughout Judea and Samaria, other than the apostles. Okay, they take care of Stephen. But in verse 4, we find this. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That's how the gospel and the church gets to Antioch. You read in verse 19, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. The Jews, that's a natural place to begin. Paul would do the same thing in his missionary journeys, and then he'd go and share the gospel with the Gentiles. But the church in Jerusalem was scattered. They were, they were kind of set in place. They were kind of happy to stay put. I mean, that's their home, right? But then the death of Stephen occurred in chapter 7 as he preached the word. And as God could only orchestrate this story, that Pharisee named Saul, directing the early days of the persecution against the church, you get to Acts chapter 9, Jesus encounters Saul on the road to Damascus, takes his side and says, why are you persecuting me? To which Saul's life then is radically changed because now he knows for a fact that Jesus is Lord, and he surrenders his life to follow Jesus and to proclaim the gospel as he is the gospel, uh, the, the apostle sent to the Gentiles. And by the end of this passage this morning that we're at, you will find Saul coming to Antioch, not to persecute, but now disciple the believers in Antioch. Only God could orchestrate such a story as this. And in verse 4, there's this very clear picture that as they are scattered out, uh, in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, that they're scattered out. They don't go into hiding. You don't find the church in Jerusalem building up the walls and shrinking in and saying, we, we must play it safe. We must be careful. We must, be, uh, we must keep to ourselves and, and not make too much of a scene. We don't, we don't want to cause too much of a scene here and, and get more persecution. We're, they don't go into hiding. What do they do? Well, they scatter, but as they're scattering, they're not quiet. Wherever the Lord sent them, Acts chapter 8, verse 4 says, they were preaching the word. That is the word of Christ, which Paul tells us in Romans, what happens? 
faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So as they're going, they're preaching the word. So they're called to Christ by the preaching of the gospel. Now they are sent out preaching the same gospel. But could you imagine those who left Rome, uh, excuse me, those who left Jerusalem, could you imagine the cost to their life? The cost of what was at stake when they left home, when they left Jerusalem? They left their livelihoods in Jerusalem. Everything they had, they left behind. I mean, maybe they took enough to survive till they got to some place they could call home again. But what they did take was the gospel. But it completely uprooted their lives. But we have to remember the words of Jesus. He told his disciples in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. But he didn't stop there, did he? No, he went Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You see, some in the church in Jerusalem made up of Jewish converts, Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, converts, they were kind of pleased to stay put. But the persecution sent many of them out. One of those we know is Philip. Acts chapter 8 tells us about Philip, right? Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And then Philip is transported to Samaria, where he shares the gospel with them. But here, into Antioch, we have unknown, unnamed men coming uh, in the church to proclaim the cause of Christ. They're out of Cyprus, which is an island out in the, uh, out in the Mediterranean Sea. So it's not the mother church in Jerusalem that sent missionaries to Antioch, but rather it is totally God bringing about life to this young church in Antioch. Jerusalem was a great gathering. It's a fantastic gathering. All the apostles were there, but Jerusalem had a problem reaching non-Jews, Gentiles, in other words. They had a hard time with that. We'll come across that again later in the book of Acts, but for now, we'll just leave it that they had a hard time reaching the Gentiles. But when you look into Antioch, you see a difference. You see that Antioch was an international church. They're a missional church. They take the, 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 the gospel call and the great commission seriously, and they send out missionaries. One of those, two of those being Paul and Barnabas. They were committed to the cause and the call of Christ upon their life to make disciples of all the nations. The second mark of a healthy church is that it is marked by a deep commitment to preach the gospel, to the preaching of the gospel of Christ, that word of Christ. Look at verse 20. He says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. So at first they're just working with the Jews, but by the end of verse 20, there's another group or a branch off of the first group and they come to Antioch. They're speaking to the Greek-speaking Gentiles, the Hellenists, and they're preaching the Lord Jesus. They're committed to the preaching of the gospel. There are some here in that early church that will cross over that ethnic line and begin preaching the Lord Jesus to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. These men from Cyprus and Cyrene began sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. Can you imagine that God would break out and not just love the Jew, but also the Gentile as well? He said he would in the Old Testament. And this group of, of, of believers, this early church, they're engaged in their culture to reach them. Reaching the Jews, it, it was a natural pathway into the city, but they would go beyond that. Paul, again, would go to the synagogue first, but then he would go beyond that. And begin speaking to the Jews, you see, uh, to the Gentiles. You see that this sermon in Athens that is captured in the book of Acts for us. But these guys here from Cyprus and Cyrene, they, they break a major culture, 
cult- cultural barrier. Like there's no anti-Gentile bias happening here, and we should all be thankful for that, for we are Gentiles. And without this gospel crossing over that ethnic line, we wouldn't be here, and we wouldn't know the gospel of Jesus. This is where it starts for the rest of the world. But clearly, their message is what mattered most. It's not about the fact that they broke cultural barriers. It's the fact that they continue to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what mattered the most. It's kind of like what Paul said to the Corinthian church when he said, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Paul didn't let those cultural ethnic differences stop him from sharing what mattered most, which was the gospel. We have to be very careful not to fall into the same trap of protecting a way of life over sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. In a little while, we're going to start um, another 30 days of prayer entitled, Who's Your One? And there, we're going to be praying for lost people. You begin praying now, who would God lay upon your heart to share the gospel with? But when you look across the church in the United States, that our numbers continue to fall all across our nation because churches have decided to hunker down in our shelters and let the people out there make it on their own. But friends, we have to keep preaching the gospel, and it's not just me up here on Sunday mornings, but daily we have to proclaim the gospel. We have to share the gospel. So we try to engage the culture. Some would try to engage the culture with a soft gospel that's really no gospel at all. Maybe sprinkle in a little bit of what's called universalism, where, which will, where in the end everybody's going to get saved, whether they believe in Jesus or not, which the scripture doesn't teach that. But you start bringing in a little bit of sin, that little bit of talk and sin, and suddenly it becomes offensive. But yet we still must preach that Jesus is Lord. They weren't preaching a maybe Jesus or a little bit of Jesus. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. It's interesting to me as I was reading this week that they weren't preaching Jesus as Messiah. They weren't using that Hebrew word Messiah, though he is. But rather, they were using a word that the Gentiles would understand, which was Lord, right? Because for the Gentile, especially for the Roman, Caesar was supposed to be Lord, boss, emperor, right? But the Greek word here, kurios, would have been known to them. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. They're both true statements. He is Christ. He is Messiah. He is Lord. Yes, both of those are the same thing. But listen, they were not out preaching that the Ten Commandments be plastered all over town because the Gentiles wouldn't have understood that anyway. That didn't point them to Jesus. Unless it's connected to the gospel, it doesn't point anybody to Jesus. They weren't preaching nationalism. They weren't preaching political affiliation. They were all Romans by this time. They didn't get to vote anyway. And so what did it matter? None of those things were important. They weren't preaching about how to be a better husband or a better wife or a better employee or a better parent. Friends, the gospel informs those things, but that is not what they were preaching. They were preaching the gospel of Christ crucified and resurrected. They were preaching the gospel. What is the gospel? If you read Romans 1 through 4, you'll get the best picture, I think. Well, one of the best pictures in all of the New Testament. Here's a summation of what the gospel is. The good news that there is one and only one God who is holy, and he has made us in his image to know him. Now, by saying that, I'm not neg- neglecting this trinity. I'm, I totally believe that. But there is one God who is holy. He's made us in his image 
to know him. But we have sinned, and in that sin, we are cut off from him. And yet in his great love, God has become a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself to completion and taking on himself the punishment for the sins that all of us have committed and all who would ever turn from their sin and trust him, they are paid for. And he rose again from the dead on the third day, showing that God accepted his sacrifice, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and that God's wrath was completely satisfied in his death at the cross. And now today he calls us to repent and to turn away from our sins and to trust in Christ alone for forgiveness. That if we would repent of our sins and trust in Christ, that we are born again into a new life, an eternal life with God. And even still today, he is gathering one new people, that's the church, to himself among all of those who have submitted to Christ as Lord. That is what we preach. Something else struck me regarding this passage that we don't know, we don't know the names of the people doing this preaching or this sharing of the gospel. Point is, there are no super celebrity preachers in Antioch at this point. It's just faithful brothers and perhaps some sisters sharing the gospel Yes, ordinary people can be used of God to make a difference in his kingdom. They were being faithful to Jesus. That's it. They were just being faithful. No plan, no program, no budgets, just a simple pursuit of knowing Christ and making him known, sharing him with others. It wasn't just the preacher or the staff or the deacons. It was the church. I love what Alastair Begg said about this. He said, when you read the Bible, you will discover that there is no one who is insignificant in the purposes of God. You were born again, bought with a price for a reason. The healthy church is also marked by the presence of God. The healthy church is marked by the presence of God. That should be the third one. Verse 21. We look again and see, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So if they're just ordinary people, how did it happen that they were so engaged in this expanding ministry? How did they, how did they do what they were doing? Well, they were faithful. They trusted, they trusted Christ and the call on their life. But it wasn't, it's not about them. If you look at verse 21, it really is about the presence of God. The hand of the Lord was with them. You go back to the Old Testament, anytime you see the hand of God with Israel or the presence of God with Israel, they're successful. When he removed that from them, that protection, that presence, they suffered. The hand of God is the, is the presence of God. His hand, his presence was with them, and it blessed their witness. Friends, Jesus is always going to be the hero. The Lord here is the center of attention in verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. Not the hand of Paul, not the hand of the apostles, but the hand of the Lord. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. He's the hero of the message because it's his good news. And it's good news about the Lord Jesus. He's the goal of the message because people were turning to the Lord. Not turning to the church. They were turning to the Lord. And then he's the source of power, which means that the Lord's hand was with them. Jesus was very busy building his church. The Holy Spirit is active in this moment. You know, as I've read and studied over the years, the church guru's growth 
gurus that are, have written so many books and they've tried to narrow it down to a list of do's and don'ts. Here's how to make your church grow. Here's how to do this. Here's how to do that. All the do's and don'ts of growing a church from marketing to announcements to branding to preaching style, music style, atmosphere in the auditorium, lighting, graphics, strategic plans, great big vision statements that everybody can memorize and quote more than they can quote John 3.16. All the while, we ignore the most important truth that healthy churches are marked by the presence of God. You can read for yourself through the book of Acts and you see that the church prayed. They knew that if God wasn't in it, they learned early on, if God wasn't in it, it didn't need to happen. For then it was going to be in their own power, which is no power at all when compared with the hand of God being with the church. And they were a praying people. So here's your shameless commercial for Tuesday night, February 7th, as we're going to have our first prayer service. The doors will open at 5.30. You can come and spend that time quietly in prayer. It's not a time for visitation and mixing and mingling in this room. You want to do that, you do it outside. In this room is going to be a quiet place for people to come, open your Bible, and read and pray. If you need someone to pray for you, I will be here. I will pray for you. There will be some other people around that can certainly do that. At 6 o'clock, we will start our time of worship and prayer. More on that in a minute. But that's when we start. So make it Tuesday night. We'd love to see you here. All right. Uh, number four, the effective or the, the healthy church is marked by effective evangelism. Effective evangelism. If you take 19 verses 19, 20, and 21 all together, you'll see there that they were deeply concerned about sharing the gospel with people. They knew it to be true. This whole Jesus thing, they knew that they were, they were convinced. How were they convinced? They were convinced by the life change they had witnessed in their own lives first and in the lives of those who came after. To see the life change that began to take effect and began to daily change their lives to be more like Christ. That they called out to Jesus for salvation and had their life from the inside out drastically different than a moment before. Evangelism, friends, is simply telling non-Christians the good news about what Jesus Christ has done to save sinners, urging them to repent and believe. It's as simply as I can put it, it's just sharing the gospel, the calling of people to repent and to put their trust in Christ Jesus, repent of their sin and trust in Christ. And we can't make them repent. We are called to faithfully share the gospel. God is the one who does the work of salvation, not you. See, that takes some of the pressure off, doesn't it? All we got to do is share the message. He does the work. We also have to make it clear that believing in Christ is costly. We do a disservice to those that we're sharing the gospel with when we, don't, when we fail to mention that following Jesus is costly. But it's so worth it. It is so worth it. We're going to address evangelism again in this next 30 days when we do our Who's Your One campaign. We're going to have a wall on the back, a space on the back wall where that day we start, you'll have a little card just about the size of a business card, and it just says, who's your one with a blank line, and I'm going to ask you to put a name on there, and that you would write that name in there, having prayed about it, and, and for the next 30 days, that name is who you're lifting up before the Lord, one for opportunity, two for uh, receptive ears and, and hearts to hear the gospel message, and we're going to keep that thing up until those names are, are all in the kingdom of God or until we, we die trying. 
And we're just going to keep it up. We're going to keep that in our focus. It's got to be a part of our prayer life as a church. We don't want to just be well, right? That's what we pray for so often, make me well. But man, we get, all the while, we got friends that are dying and going to hell. So we're going to pray them into the kingdom of God as much as we possibly can. And give us opportunity, Lord. Lift up this name. Give us opportunity to share this life-giving message with them. And oh, that they would turn and trust in Christ for the salvation of their soul. We're going we're gonna to start that in a few weeks and I pray that you will join us uh, in that time. Who is your one? Because we want to see lives changed for the glory of God. Next, the healthy church is marked by the dynamic discipleship. Number five, dynamic discipleship. If you look at verses 22 through 26, you find there that the church has grown to a point that a report has come back to Jerusalem about this, uh, this uprising in Antioch known as the church uh, and they want to send somebody out to investigate what's going on out in Antioch, what's happening there. They're, they've already picked up that the gospel has gone to Samaria, and they had sent Barnabas and, uh, and uh, uh, Paul there once before. So here, again, we have this moment where they send Barnabas out. And when he gets there, he sees the, the grace of God. He sees the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I use that word dynamic discipleship because dynamic means a process characterized by constant change, activity, or progress. That's what discipleship is. That we are called to train up as a learner, having followed through in believer's baptism, learning to observe the truth of Christ, and to become more like him every single day. And the church in Jerusalem had sent Barnabas. Barnabas is known as the son of encouragement. Hey, if you're having a bad day, you want to get a text from Barnabas, okay? You want to read one of his tweets or one of his Facebook posts because it's going to uplift you and uh, encourage your heart. This is who Barnabas was. It was not Paul and Barnabas. It was Peter and John that went to investigate Samaria. But here is, is Barnabas. Saul's coming on the scene. And look again. He examined them. And as he, as he looked at them and watched them, he clearly witnessed the grace of God. What does that mean? It means that he witnessed the life transformation that had happened in them, in this young upstart church. That in these people known as the church, he recognized the power and the grace of God had been at work. He recognized their conversion, the change of heart due to trusting and faith in Jesus. The effect of God's grace in their conduct and how they operated and lived their daily lives. All a result as a result of God's power. You remember what Paul wrote to the Romans, right? It is the power, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. This is the power of God at work. And this is where Barnabas sees, this is what he sees happening. His response was not one of skepticism, but one of rejoicing, one of gladness. He was glad to see God's grace changing lives. Man, that's an exciting time. When somebody you've been praying for finally comes around and they put their trust in Christ and that life is changed, but man, that's just when the work really begins. Then he encouraged them. As he has seen the grace of God at work, he encourages them or exhorts them to remain steadfast in their faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is and will always be the crucified, risen, and exalted Savior and Lord. To rely on God for the forgiveness of sins. And the payment of their debt through Jesus is death. 
And that they would continue to trust in Jesus for the reconciliation between God and them and to depend on the Holy Spirit and his transforming work in their lives. There's a lot to unpack right there. That's what, but that's how he was encouraging him. That sounds a little shallow, doesn't it? Though, just remain steadfast in your faith. Man, if you've had a bad day and suddenly you think you can, you can fix your bad day on your own, you stepped out of trusting Jesus for that. Have you seen the list of sins in my life? You look at your own life, how long that list of sins must be, and the depth of our depravity? Man, that is the greatness of God. That is the power of God to change an old sinner like me and to change a sinner like you. We go deeper into that gospel day in and day out, and we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we depend on the Holy Spirit and that work in our life. And Barnabas didn't just get up and give him one message, but it was a continuing effort. That's what discipleship is. It's, it's a crock pot, not a microwave. Right? Barnabas needed help. Why did, he, why did Barnabas need help? Look at verse 23. Uh, excuse me, verse um, 24. He was a good man. This is about Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. The church was growing rapidly, so much so that Barnabas could not handle it all. So he goes in verse 25. He takes some time out and goes to Tarsus to look for who? Saul. There's a life change story right there in Saul. Let's go get the man who used to, who started this whole persecution thing. Let's go get him, bring him back, and he's going to help me disciple for the next year. Wow, what a life change. What a life change. Verses 27 through 30 show us the sixth mark, which is the church is marked by generosity. It's the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy, not everyone has, but it is an important act. A major famine had struck that part of the world as told by some prophets that had come to Antioch. And so the church decided to take up a collection and support their fellow believers in Jerusalem. Most likely it was made up of silver and gold, perhaps some food as well. But food was scarce. And what do you need to buy food? You need silver or gold. Was there a certain amount that they gave? No, everyone gave according to their ability, the scripture says. They each were free to decide how much he or she could give or would give to contribute to this relief mission. Friends, the standard of giving is always in the heart. It's not the size of the gift. It's where's the heart of the giver. The scripture, the New Testament standard is to give cheerfully, giving out of joy, and there is a difference in giving cheerfully or versus giving out of legalism and obligation. I would much rather you put in your offering this morning in the boxes out uh, in the welcome center with a smile on your face, because the word actually can, can, can go as far to mean hysterical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't fake it, though. But give with a, cho a joyful heart. And I get the sense that this is how it was for Antioch. Finally, in chapter 13, I'll point to the last mark. That the healthy church is marked or fueled, rather, by worship and prayer. There were some prophets and teachers. Barnabas is one of them that had gathered in Antioch. As well as Saul is still there. In verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Friend, the church, the mission of the church is fueled by worship and prayer, always. It is empowered by God. It's not the personality of your pastor because he doesn't have much of one. It's not the personality of your staff because, well, they got a lot of personalities. It is the hand of God. It is the hand of God that will get us to a place that's healthy, keep us healthy, sustain us in health, grow us in a healthy way, and see us unto completion. Philippians 1.6, Paul wrote that to the church in Philippi. As they were going through a struggle, he said, I am sure of this, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is through worship and prayer and the presence of God and his hand upon the church that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of God alone, the power of God alone will sustain us and keep us. The founding of this church in Antioch happened because of the persecution in Jerusalem, not because Jerusalem sent out missionaries. They were content to stay put. But in God's doing, in God's time, he sent the church out. And you'll read of the church at Antioch was a worshiping and praying community, fasting, showing that they were deeply dependent upon God. And then they sent them out. Friends, that is where it starts. This is how we begin to take the gospel outside our doors. We are so motivated to reach across those ethnic barriers and cultural differences because in this moment is where God works in our heart to stir within us the calling, the reminder of what he said to the disciples in the Great Commission, to go and make disciples, and as we go, we make disciples, teaching and baptizing to the ends of the earth, teaching them to obey and observe all that Christ had commanded, remembering what? That he is with us. It's amazing when you look at Antioch and you get into some of the history of Antioch and the cultural surrounding a culture surrounding Antioch that such a hodgepodge group of people could come together and accomplish great things for the kingdom of God. And I look up across this room this morning, as I said in the early service, I'll say the same thing. We got people from all different kinds of backgrounds. Some of you from Kansas. That's all right. I like Kansas folk. Some of you from Indiana. I think I met somebody from Indiana this morning. We got Michigan, Wisconsin, New Hampshire. We got people from all over. Even some of you good South Texas folk are here this morning. How is it that all from different backgrounds work together for the glory of God? Because of the grace of God. Because each one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and it is the hand of God that has rescued us through Jesus Christ. It is through worship and prayer that we will move forward by that grace of God. And it is through worship and prayer that we will remain steadfast in our faith in Jesus Christ. There's a story told about Alexander the Great. You'll remember him, the great young conqueror, who once learned that there was a young man in his army that carried his namesake, Alexander, who was a notorious coward. Alexander the Great, who conquered the world at a young age, age 23, called the soldier before him and said, is your name Alexander, and are you named after me? 
And the trembling coward said, yes, sir, my name is Alexander, and I was named after you. And the young general said, then either be brave or change your name. Fortunately, Christ does not say that to us, but he does exhort us to live out our calling in faithful and obedient service. Let's pray. Oh, God, help us to be loyal, trusting, brave, courageous, committed followers of our Savior and our Lord who refuse to turn back, who dare to stand firm on the gospel and to make Christ's name known to all those around us. Father, brave, courageous followers of Christ who desire with your divine enabling and power to shine the light of gospel upon the dark world, that they too would come out of darkness into your marvelous light, winning others to faith in you. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord.